most of you know, October is recognized nationally, or, or I guess among churches, is Pastor Appreciation Month. And uh, I got the wonderful opportunity this week to uh, talk to my favorite pastor, Pastor Dan Spicer. It's been about a month since we had talked to each other. Couldn't tell you how many times we've talked to each other out of throwing the, in the towel. Uh, but uh, it was a surprise to me to hear from him uh, that he almost died in the last month. Uh, apparently there was a couple of days he was in the hospital with COVID uh, where it was a little touch and go. So I'm very thankful uh, the Lord did not take him. Uh, he ministers at a church where my mother and uh, sister and several of my nieces and nephew attend. Uh, but it was just great time to talk to him and be encouraged by him and, and share some things with him. And as I continued to think this week about pastors or those who have been an influence in my life, my mind drifted to the late Billy Graham. No matter what you think about him, here was a man who preached to more people in the last hundred years than anybody else. His books can be found in most Christian homes. In fact, his books were uh, his three of his books were the first books I read now long after I became a Christian. But I would suggest to you this morning that it is my opinion that his legacy is not in his sermons. His legacy is not in his crusades. It's not in his books. I think his biggest legacy, as I thought about it, is or was his character. In almost 70 years of high-profile ministry, there was never a scandal about women, never a scandal about money, never a scandal about alcohol or, or being an overbearing leader. And I think that's even more significant now that he has died. As we've seen, in some cases, scandals don't seem to reveal themselves until that famous person dies. Yet here we are, nothing. So even though there are things I might disagree with him, things that he said later in his ministry, I do greatly admire the man's character. And unfortunately, the, that kind of character seems to be lost on some of the most well-known names in Christianity. Many of you know the moral failings of some men who became famous as TV evangelists in the 1980s. In the last five years, several well-known names have had to resign, not just because of sex scandals, but men who were revealed as being bullies behind the scenes, cult leaders, alcoholics, and financial frauds. In 2020 alone, three men who were admired and followed nationally and internationally were exposed as having great sins in their lives. And I think the reason I bring all of this up is I think it kind of highlights and warns us that what I'm about to talk to you today about with you today is of significant importance. There is a great need to make sure that not only is Jesus the one we're following and not one of these men, but we need to know for ourselves what it means to follow Jesus. Now, last time we were here in this text, there was this large crowd following Jesus and and we see the disciples, they saw this large crowd as an opportunity. And what Jesus saw was a group of people who were there for various and sundry reasons, but they were not there to gladly hear the gospel. So instead of being in front of this large crowd, and instead of just revealing himself as the Christ, he uses the moment to teach his disciples about what it really means to follow him. Now, last time we saw that Jesus points out that he is to be treated as our most important relationship. 
We saw last time that following Jesus means that we hear what he says and we believe and we receive it by faith. We saw that following Jesus means we need Jesus' help, that not just the supernatural event that saves us, but the supernatural strength we need to even live the Christian life. Now, as we continue with this parable of a sower, I think we're going to get three more explanations of what it means to follow Jesus. And so I have three points for you this morning, but just something a little different. I'm going to give you the three points, but I'm also going to give you a single word that I think summarizes the idea that being presented there. So we'll start with number one. I would say to you that following Jesus means trusting what Jesus does. Following Jesus means trusting what Jesus does. And if you want that little word to describe, I should call it a little word, the word to describe this section, I would call sovereignty. I would use the word sovereignty. In verse 16 of our text, Jesus calls the disciples blessed. He says they've been given the ability to hear and believe, as we saw in verse 11. But in verse 17, he says you're blessed because you get to see what others wished they'd been able to see. We find several times in the Bible that there were those who ministered, those God would use, who never saw the end of what they did. They never saw the result of walking by faith. They never really knew what God was doing. And here, the disciples don't understand why Jesus didn't make more of this opportunity with the large crowd. As I mentioned, the disciples saw with earthly eyes. And so in this moment, you have to understand there's a tension between what they're seeing and what they're experiencing and what Jesus is doing. Now, to firm up the truth that they need to trust him, Jesus shows that the disciples, shows the disciples that this great crowd is, being, is fulfilling prophecy. He quotes from Isaiah chapter 6. Most Christians are familiar with the opening of the chapter. We see Isaiah, and he's called by God, and he's there in heaven, and he admits he's a sinner, and, and it's this glorious moment where God forgives his sin and calls him out to the ministry. But right after that, the text in Isaiah reminds us, or that Isaiah is told, that he's going to go proclaim the gospel to people who won't listen. Now that raises a question, why call him to preach the gospel if nobody's going to listen? And the answer the Bible gives is because that's what God called him to do. And Jesus is saying here that this crowd, this this moment in Isaiah 6, is a foreshadowing of his ministry. His explanation as to why he spoke in a parable is because he understands that they are not going to listen. Now, this reality is still true, isn't it? Now, we don't always know what God is doing. We don't always get to see how things work. Now, now we have it a little bit better than the Old Testament saints. We know that whatever God is doing, we know it has some relation to the fact that Christ died for sinners and rose again. And that's more than any other Old Testament saint ever had. And his response then to the disciples is essentially trust the sovereignty of God. There is that difference, as I mentioned, between what they were experiencing and the need to trust what Jesus was doing. And this is a pretty pro- uh, common problem, isn't it? The experience of losing a job makes it hard to embrace what God is doing. The loss of a loved one makes it hard to understand what God is doing. 
And just like the disciples, we raise questions, and it's not really a question, but we say to God, why? Why did you take my loved one at this point? Why take my job at my age? Or why take my job at this phase of raising my children? We also understand the disciples don't ask that question out of curiosity. What they're doing is they're disagreeing. They're saying, I would have done this differently. Lord, I think you got the wrong plan. They're questioning the God of the universe. And if we're honest, we do the same thing. But what I want to point out to you is that Jesus responds to their questioning, their disagreement, as he promised he would at the end of chapter 11. And where Jesus says, come to me, because I am gentle and lowly of heart. He understands that you're coming with a heart that perhaps has had great significant pain. And he's saying, you know what? When you come to me with these kind of questions, you are going to find gentleness and sympathy. And what it does is it, it draws us in to trust him even more. Maybe you're like me. Maybe you think if you've got those kind of questions, if those kind of things pop up in your head, you're waiting for God to be harsh with you. But here we see with Jesus how he handles his disciples is exactly who he told us he would be, gentle and lowly of heart. And we can then trust him even if we don't know what he's doing. That brings me to point number two. Following Jesus means to bear fruit. Following Jesus means to bear fruit. And if you want that single word, the word I would put there is obedience. Look back at verse 12. This is one of those statements that if we don't read carefully, we can get a little confused. There's a difference. Jesus is talking about having or having not. Now there's a different, you can have something a different way. Let me explain one can have the facts of the gospel, but not believe it. There are those who might have a basic understanding of Christianity, but they don't believe it. So to have not is to not believe the gospel. To lose what they have is to have something that isn't faith. Think of it this way. A person can have all the facts of the gospel, they can have a PhD in the gospel, but not believe the gospel. Jesus is saying that that is a heart that will become more and more accepting of the rejection of the gospel. They will grow into the habit of rejecting the gospel. So, so they, have, uh, they, they don't have faith. So what little they do have will be of no benefit to them. They might know everything, but they, because they don't believe what they have will be lost. And so the rule is this. Jesus is saying the more you have, the more you gain. The more you don't have, the more you lose. The more you hear and believe, the more you obey. The more you grow, the more you don't hear and don't believe and don't obey, the more you will drift away. Now, if we go to the explanation of the parable, it becomes even clearer. Look at the first soil. It doesn't receive any seed. And we're talking about somebody who not only has no faith, but they don't have any interest. Then we go to the next soil. How uh, We still don't have faith, but something shows up there. In one case, we have somebody who hears it, and it, it, the Bible describes it as receiving it with joy. And they endure for a time, but when persecution and trouble come, 
that are related to being associated with the gospel, they're out of here. That's an example of having and then losing what they had. But then the next soil we talked about before, we have these seeds in the thorns. It too begins to grow, but it's choked to death. And the idea of someone who hears and tries to live the Christian life without the power of the Holy Spirit. And in this case, that person becomes crushed by the weight of worldly cares. Perhaps they're anxious about something, and so they abandon Christian teaching. Or they're tempted by getting rich, as the text says, and they abandon Christian teaching. They don't have faith, and they never did have faith. All they had was an outward appearance, and it's choked out of them. They had, and what they had not, and what they did have is lost. Now, when Jesus is talking about here, I can testify more than once in my ministry. I'll give you an example. I know a man who was literally saved out of the mob life. And he taught Sunday school at a church where some relatives attended. And he, I met him several times. He was an incredibly humble man. Very, very clearly, despite all the rough edges, this was a man who had been changed by hearing and believing the gospel of Jesus Christ. But at the same time, I can also tell you, I have watched people come in Sunday after Sunday after Sunday, and they have dressed the part, and they, they speak the lingo, but when something doesn't go their way, I've had people speak to me in ways that would make a sailor blush. The Christian life can be copied for a time. Like I said, people can learn Christian culture, they can learn Christian lingo, and all the appearances of life can be there. But I've never failed to see. When there isn't truly life there, I've never failed to see that appearance disappear when anxiety shows up. Not once have I failed to see that appearance disappear when being a Christian is no longer an advantage. Not once have I failed to see the mask come off as anxieties and loss pile up. What was there is abandoned. What was there is choked out and revealed that there was never any life there to begin with. Now, I want you to understand that the, the parable, the, the sower here in the parable is clearly Jesus. This is a parable about his ministry. And this is a parable where he's, he's explaining to the disciples that this huge crowd does not mean that he's popular. This huge crowd does not mean he's making an impact. He's trying to help his disciples look past the numbers of the people, look past the influencers or the important people hanging around. He wants them to see past the self-deceived and the pretenders. He wants them to look for value. He wants them to look for fruit. Now, how does one look for fruit? What's the biggest and hardest part of growing fruit? I've gotten to a little bit of horticulture since I moved here. What's the hardest part about growing fruit? Well, there is the problem of trying to keep pests away. But to me, the hardest part about growing fruit is the waiting. Fruit comes in time. I've watched our apple tree show signs that it's going to bear fruit and then doesn't when the time comes. You don't really know if something's going to bear fruit until it comes to the season in which it's supposed to. And in the same way, it's sometimes not until the season of crisis or that season of hardship or that season of rejection that we will finally see whether or not there is fruit. 
And even seasons of blessing and seasons of prosperity and seasons of answered prayer, those are opportunities for us to see whether or not there is fruit. And what Jesus is is, is pointing out is the real followers, the genuine followers of Jesus, they bear fruit and they bear the best fruit during those kinds of seasons. But no matter what is happening, the simple truth here is that followers of Jesus bear fruit. And that brings me to number three. Following Jesus means dealing with difficult soil. Following Jesus means dealing with difficult soil. And if you wanted a single word to describe it, I would put the word perseverance. If we go back through both the telling and the explanation of the parable, it becomes very clear that the the main theme is not the sower. The main theme is not the fruit. The main theme of this parable is the soil. There's a few things about this parable you should know. This is one of the few parables we find in the first three Gospels. This is one of the few parables that Jesus ever actually explains. Now, I would suggest to you that immediately most people think of this parable in the sense of farming. That would resonate with people, right? Because they were mostly farmers back then. I want you to understand, though, that they farmed a little differently. From what I understand, I'm not a farmer. We have a tendency to to turn the soil over. We add the nutrients, and then we plant. In many cases, what they did was the other way. They would scatter the seed, then turn over the soil, and then add the nutrients. Now, if this was so self-apparent, if this parable was so easy to understand, why does Jesus take one of those few times to explain it? Because I think there's something else going on here. I think we're not just supposed to think in agricultural terms. I think we're, he's pointing out something theological. Well, think for a moment. These images of thorns, these images of dry ground, we've seen these before. If you go back to the book of Genesis and to Adam and Eve, when the ground is cursed, how is it described? Working it is going to bring pain and trouble. The soil is going to produce thorns and thistles. The idea being that the soil which once, uh, once freely produced fruit was now going to require Adam to work. He was going to have to work hard and he was going to gain very, very little. We can move to Isaiah 5 and here God describes his people like a garden. And he does all the things a gardener should do. He renews the soil, he builds the wall to keep the pests away. He makes sure it gets plenty of sun and plenty of rain. All the things it would need to thrive. And when this garden bore fruit, here's the problem. God says it bore fruit that I didn't plant. If God, think of it this way, the picture in the Hebrew there is, is that he cultivated an apple orchard, and when the season came for apples, all he found were rotten potatoes. That's the idea. What, he, what was produced was not from God. Or then you go over to Micah 7, and there we read about a time when the harvest season comes, and there's nothing to collect into the barns. God was looking for fruit in the lives of men, and the soil had produced nothing, and the people are described as hedges full of thorns. My point is this, the soil of the human heart is the toughest soil in which to grow anything. Even if the conditions are as perfect as possible, there's still no guarantee of fruit. You can grow up in a Christian home and have plenty to eat and drink and to wear and stay warm and have a mom and dad who love you, but that doesn't mean there's going to be fruit. Week after week after week, you could minister to those Awana kids every Wednesday night, and there may never be fruit. 
We all know the old missionary stories like Hudson Taylor and Ananiam Judson who served faithfully for many years seeing little to no fruit. And one of the things that came to my mind this week as I was thinking about this, I can't imagine the discouragement of many of the people in our church over 70. Years and years of loving the community, faithfully coming to church, faithfully giving to the church, teaching Sunday school, holding outreach events, and now they sit at home and they watch the news and see the state of the world they live in. But however, we go back to Micah 7, the author says that while things look really dark and hopeless, we will wait upon the Lord. We are very, we have to admit, we are very poor predictors of who will and will not hear and believe. And that fact can lead to significant amounts of discouragement. Especially for those who teach or preach the Bible, try to love their community and their local church. And because it's so discouraging, that's often the time when discussions begin. Maybe we should change the music. Maybe you need a younger pastor. Maybe we need to start this program. Maybe we need to stop that program. And I wonder sometimes, maybe we just need to realize that we're going to come in sometimes from a hard day's work, and we're going to have to remind ourselves that we're sweaty and tired because the soil is difficult. It's not because we aren't spending enough money or because we aren't spiritual enough or because we're no longer old school or because we're too old school. People, there are spots in this auditorium, there's places in these pews that are empty, not because anybody failed, but because this soil is difficult. In fact, the Bible says it's impossible to work with unless God gives the increase. In many ways, following Jesus then is very counterintuitive. We just don't do it naturally. Many times we have to trust the sovereignty of God because what we're seeing in front of us, what we're experiencing as it happens, makes no sense. And while we're saved by grace through faith, those who follow Jesus always, always bear fruit. That is clear. And the most clear times that it has a tendency to happen is during those seasons of joy or those seasons of pain. And sometimes we will come home exhausted. Sometimes we will see little fruit. And once again, we have to weed out the thorns and thistles. We have to realize the soil that God has given us here in this area is difficult. But the people who follow Jesus persevere. We're obedient. And we trust the sovereignty of God. And as the Apostle Paul says, we plant, we water, and we wait for God to give the increase. Let's pray. Father, I pray you would continue to make us followers of Jesus. People who trust in the sovereignty of God when what we are experiencing or seeing just doesn't make sense to us. I pray we be the kind of people that expect and want and desire fruit to come out of our lives, especially during those difficult seasons. And I just pray, Father, that as followers of Jesus, we would understand that the work we have to do is hard. The soil we have to work in is hard soil. And I thank you, Father, so much for the men that we can look back to, men like Hudson Taylor and Ananiah Judson and probably many pastors that people would name in this room who have taken the time to work that soil. And I thank you for all those who have uh, worked in Awana programs and youth groups and, and done Sunday school who have taken the time to do the hard work of working in that soil. We thank you for the missionaries we've had and the missionaries we will have. We thank you for working in that soil. And I just pray, Father, that we would not lose heart, that we would understand that 
But we need to keep working. We need to persevere. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.